This episode of the No Film School podcast was brought to you by Elements, human-centered media storage. Check them out at elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of October 8th. 2020. This is Charles Hain, writer at No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And I am here with writer for No Film School, Oakley Anderson Moore. Hey, everybody. This week, we are going to be talking about Morph Cut gets a little bit more attention than uh, Adobe Premiere editing techniques are used to getting. Um some get-out-the-vote things from M. Night Shyamalan, the unfortunate closing of some theaters from Cineworld, the big UK theater chain that owns a big American theater chain. We're going to be talking about the movie that almost out-earned Tenet over the weekend, and it is a shocker. Um, it is magical. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, bake-offs and why everyone hates them and what the WGA is going to do about it. And we're also going to talk a little bit about what music directors, music video directors are trying to do about it. All that... And tech news, a new kind of pipe. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. So the first story we have to talk about this week, if you haven't heard, the president of the United States of America. And no, I'm not talking about the amazing 90s band. I'm talking about the actual <laughs> president of the United States of America has been infected with COVID. A million memes have been launched. It is a very complicated situation. Um He's recklessly endangering lots of other people, and it's awful. Um, but which the filmmaking angle on this, because we are a filmmaking blog, and we try as hard as we can to, to provide a little bit of relief from the chaos that is 2020. To remember that we're artists and we make things, and and we have, you know, we we do like to develop our skills in that. Is uh, editing Twitter exploded over the weekend with the observation that uh, there is a fluid morph. In the video they released of Trump discussing his diagnosis, it was the video that came out Friday. And right after he says the word therapeutics, there is what is obvious to any user, uh, an attempt to do a fluid morph. Now, in keeping with the altogether professionalism of this administration, it's a poorly done fluid morph. Uh, there's a lot of <laughs> questions in editor Twitter who where people are like, hey, does it look like they didn't click progressive source and feature match? That comes from Tom Constantino. So, you know, people who are actually familiar with how to use this tool invisibly are all noticing that like our best guess, the best guess we all have right now is that they realized they needed to cut out a cough. They Googled how to do a fluid morph. None of them had <laughs> ever done it before and were happy enough with the results. My favorite part of this story is by two days ago, someone had already posted on YouTube a video tutorial on how to do Morph Cut in Premiere using the Donald Trump clip as sample video. This is like peak film nerd internet. It makes me so happy to my core that Adam McCune... Um, you know, like simultaneously, this will always be the video people see with MorphCut. He is, uh, I mean, as far as I can tell, Adam McCune is attempting to Streisand this, trying to make it that this becomes the <laughs> default thing we think of when we think of MorphCut. I know that for a long time, this will oh, always God. be what I think of when I think of MorphCut. And um, the fact that they did it so poorly, where, I mean, it's really obvious. Like if you watch it on a loop, it's, it's you know, it. It looks like a cough or a sneeze or something was just morphed out. When I saw it, it stood out. I was like, ooh, he like burps or something at 104. It was like something like that. And then everybody I knew was texting like, what happened at 104? Why does he like, it looks like he burps and swallows it. Like it was like, what is going on? And then everybody was talking about it. And then pretty quickly, you started seeing people say like, that's clearly a morph cut. They edited out a cough. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. But it was so clear that there was this weird like hiccup thing at that exact moment um and everybody caught on to it i i guess the thing that i'm struck by is that this isn't the idea of uh political leaders uh crafting their image in media to 
to appear different than reality is is certainly nothing new. It's like the oldest trick in the book. Stalin, it was a lot of early Photoshop, uh, you know, Stalin and the Soviet Union re- retouched all of the re- early photos. Yeah, and, 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 you know, propaganda in general. And fascinatingly, like one of the more fascinating things in our in like the history of the presidency that is is that people at the time didn't really know that FDR was wheelchair bound. Like they they managed to keep that essentially out of the. I mean, think about it. it was pre TV uh, appearances would have been staged. They would get him up on a podium, um, and and they would basically and he was a radio presence like constantly. But anyway. The idea that you can essentially manipulate media and uh, and change the the optics, as we say now, is again, yeah, it's nothing new. But it was just deepfake tech is so crazy, as we always talk about. And I even saw a story about how uh, zooms are going to change because there's going to be a thing where we'll probably have something up on on No Film School about this soon. But essentially, there's software that can like take data points from your face and then craft a digital you or an avatar that that goes faster than the actual video would um, to help people do like live zooms and stuff fast, like better quality faster without actually using the video, which makes room for all kinds of manipulation. Um, And I again, it's like in this time when it seems like you can get away with tricking people so easily, how did they manage to make it so bad <laughs> i, I mean i guess that's that's the story with them in general but it's just like wow everybody can fake this stuff we talk about it almost every week like how seamless deep fakes are and this is just a mess yeah i mean i guess that's the question for me is like why did you know who is on their team that's in charge of editing this and do they just not have like like you were saying charles is it just like someone who only like sort of knows how to edit and then was Googling this and, or do they actually like, how can we find out like who the video production team is? Like, can we get an interview with, uh, can we try to reach out for an interview with uh, the editor? If anybody knows, I was just going to say, maybe someone, maybe there's an aide who Googled and, and went and then ended up on no film school. Like how right? to, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, but I, I just, yeah, it's it's no, but a no film school tutorial would like not let yes. you stop at the point Good where point. it is still so obvious. Yeah, we <laughs> the, would have done the, a better job. Yeah, like it's such a it's one of those things where I'm like, it's such an easy morph cut. It's such a like he he his head barely moves, he barely moves. Like a little <laughs> bit of time fiddling with the buttons would have fixed it. And like it's clearly made by people. Like the one of the first lessons I always teach my students with post filters is I'm going to teach you what all the buttons mean. But when it's three in the morning and you're just trying to make it work, just try random buttons on and off. <laughs> like sometimes nice. that thing that you don't know what it does, you hit it and all of a sudden the plugin works better and you're happy and it's three in the morning and you get to go home. They didn't even try random – like they threw on Morph Cut and they were like, oh, wow, it's so much better. That's enough. And it's so like – I, I, lazy. I think any, yeah. <laughs> lazy is a good word. Inept, lazy, all things that like, where you're just like, regardless of what you think of the man, you're just like, why, why, why drop the ball there? Like why I mean, they, execute on such a bad, poor level? The, the other thing I was wanted to bring up along with this was that, that yesterday there was the, uh, there was like kind of like a little trailer released about him returning to the white house. And I also thought similar, like, Similarly, like, who's the video team? Because this thing is so, like, it just felt so choppy and poorly put together. <laughs> like, political ads te- have a rhythm, and people who put them together are professionals. And, you know, I know people who work in the political world as consultants and campaign managers, and I know how they, they work with major firms. Like, I just, watching that little, I don't know what to call it, that, you know, hype video almost of his return, I was just like, who cut this? It's just so bad. Maybe the whole video team has COVID in the, in their, <laughs> and that's accounting for why they're turning out such poor. Wrong poor to laugh content. because it's that serious, but right. it, it doesn't feel, it feels totally possible. That's why. I mean, there is the counter argument that is sometimes made and it is somewhat, you know, the there is the, it's all 13th dimensional chess 
he's always seven steps ahead of us. And he does this because it triggers the filmmakers and triggering film nerds is deeply satisfying. And it gets film nerds talking about it and it gets (laughs) like, and it continues the conversation. And I mean, there is some charm to the lo-fi aesthetic. Like if you guys haven't seen that ridiculous Trump train video where the, like the like 1990s children's show animation level Trump train like blows through Biden and like, it's awful. It's it just makes me like, laugh, though. Like, like it does it, make me laugh because it's so it's so silly and and uh, blunt. But it's also like teaching intro to. I, I don't teach VFX, but like I observe our VFX teachers. Our intro to VFX first semester students would do better work. It literally is. You know, I sit in class and I see people who've never opened a three D modeling software in their fourth week of class doing more interesting stuff. And so you look at it and you're like, Is it? Is it like a deliberate lo-fi like Tumblr thing where they're like deliberately riffing on a like ah it's just yeah, so Yeah, that's that's a good point because you know the lo-fi aesthetic some to some people suggests, you know, like more authenticity if you're less polished and snazzy. And some people just do yeah. appreciate the lo-fi aesthetic even beyond like uh, the ideological constraints, which is could have something to do with why Tenant is done so poorly. In the box office, Charles, I'm trying to steal your transition game here. That was such a great transition to talking about our next story of the week, which is Tenet continues to be in theaters, and there is Tenet earned 2.7 million dollars over the weekend, and another movie earned 1.9 million over the weekend. This was our box office numbers for the weekend. No, it's not 1936; it's 2020, and these are our box office numbers. The second movie. Hocus Pocus, Woo! which I'm going to say actually did not surprise me. My wife and I wanted to go see a drive-in movie. And so we looked all around the New York Tri-State area for a, dri- a drive-in movie we could see. And Hocus Pocus is playing everywhere. They are really pushing the like drive-in movie Hocus Pocus experience. So I am not at all surprised that this was number two. Um, I'm a little surprised Tenet only made 2.7 million and still managed to get number one, but that's the world we live in now. I'm not surprised because I just feel like regardless of the COVID situation where most people can't even go to a theater, I mean, there's no theater near me that I can go to to see Tenet, but I wouldn't anyways because Tenet is not the movie that, at least in America, we want to be watching right now because I feel like what we'd rather watch is Hocus Pocus. And it kind of is this like, you know, it's not really like a lo-fi. I mean, there's a lo-fi thing there, but it's also like the climate, the the psychological climate we're living in. It's like, we're already living in this pandemic where everything is so overwhelming and serious. And that's like Christopher Nolan's films are overwhelming and serious. And so I think Tenet is just like, that's like, I don't want to see Tenet. For me, it's like, I don't want to watch The Dark Knight right now. I want to watch like, the Tim Burton Batmans. Like I want to watch Batman Returns, you know? So I feel like Hocus Pocus. Yeah, obviously I would definitely watch that. I would probably watch that anytime, uh, regardless of whether we're in a pandemic. But I don't know. What do you guys think? I just think it's too serious and people don't want to see it. I think you're making a great point that uh, about what is going to change perhaps in our content landscape. Um, I, I often reference how, you know, none of us were alive as old as Charles and I may be. None of us were alive in the 1930s. Um, but if you only know the films of the 1930s, you would think they were a very different decade than they were because, and that's when Hollywood built its, you know, system really. But, uh, and what the modern feature length movie is, the whole model was built then. But the idea of, the movies were so not a reflection of the era. I've said this before, so people who have heard me say it before are probably rolling their eyes, but it was a very dystopian world and the movies are all about rich people like having a ball. And I I mean, many of them. And I just think that that could be, I don't know when. Yeah, or like The Wizard of Oz, which was, I feel like such an iconic escapist film. Yeah, like that's a perfect, Right, yeah. that's a perfect example. Um, towards the end of the decade, but but a lot of even smaller things like it's it's remarkable how much it was movies, how many movies were about really wealthy people, and I think it's because it was escapism, 
and escapism is like part of what the movies were founded on. And nobody, very few people were really wealthy then, by the way, it's Great Depression. So, I mean, they were poor, poor. And I think there will be something that happens in this era, uh, depending on where things go, where people look more for that something of escapism that is a counterpoint to the existence we're living in. Um, although you hear a lot of people say things now like, I was watching X TV show or Y film and I was screaming at the TV, no, you can't be close to each other. Like you're going to cough on someone or, you know, I, I, it's informing our viewing experience, but I really do wonder how isolation and just horrible news cycle after horrible news cycle will influence creative trends and uh, the experience of the audiences. And I wonder as filmmakers, our audience and our community, how people are thinking about, like, if, if I was going to pitch something in the next, well, now's not a great time to be pitching and ever, but <laughs> the fall is always bad, but definitely this fall. But I don't think I would pitch something that wasn't like, where do people want to go every week? Like, they don't want to go to a dark place. Where do people want to go when they yeah, go to a drive-in? Exactly. Like, I, I had the same thought. I was thinking, looking for drive-ins, like I said before. I wanted to take my kids. I'm not taking my kids to see Tenet, obviously. <laughs> but I don't even – I really don't want to go see Tenet. Like, it doesn't draw me. Um, I want to see something that's going to make me feel – take me away. Like, get me out of here, you know? I think you're right. And, you know, films, even if they're considered escapism – still the most successful ones are still like escapism, but that could still show you something specific about your life. And that's like, to your point, George, about like the depression era movies showing like super rich people. It's like, you know, it's not necessarily just that we want something that's upbeat and escapism, but it has to kind of also help us deal with our problems that we're facing in this particular time period. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, famously, Star Wars Star Wars is a great example. Uh, you know, the movies that were popular right beforehand were like movies about Watergate or Network or, you know, it was not a time or Marathon Man. Like it wasn't a time where uh, movies were dark, Taxi Driver. Uh, and it was like, hey, what about a just Disney movie? <laughs> like, What about pure fun? And it has meaning, you know. But yeah. but anyway, Charles, what were you going to say? I, I was just going to say I wasn't really expecting this take. I was expecting a much more like, you know, um, I don't know, cynical, like it's so hard to get people back into the movie theaters. But Oakley, I think you're so right that like it's not Nolan's fault that he made this movie that was finished before the pandemic. But like it is not the movie for the time. It is not a movie that like, you know, I honestly like hocus pocus period films things that take me away are are way more worth the adventure and the uh drama of like leaving the house and getting messed up and getting scrubbed up and like sitting in your car and all of that um so it is just a different time that uh you know and we can't control uh how our movies are received right like we just have to make the movies we want to make and you got to hope that they're going to line up with the world that's going to exist in two or three years and sometimes it works out great and sometimes it doesn't but sometimes it doesn't and then it does again like there's you know tenant could be a movie that goes on to have an amazing life in home video in five years where it gets rediscovered or something um you know shawshank redemption famously flopped at the box office so you know it, it could just be not the year for tenant but it might go on later i have not seen yeah. hocus pocus we Me decided neither. to get what? tickets because <laughs> uh, we're we're both a little too old. By the time uh, it came out, we were we were not the target demo. So I will. When did it? Come? I don't. I'm familiar with the name and I just the image of it, and it just does not appeal to me. <laughs> but like, but when did it come out? And I, yeah, I'm curious. Um, um, I mean, I agree with you, Charles. There's the other thing, which is just like, oh my, God. 1993. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles yeah. is right. My youth yeah. prime, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I was 14. I was not going to see a kid's movie about witches. I was going to go see <laughs> something violent that I wasn't supposed to be in the theater to see because I was a 14-year-old well, Almost boy. Pulp Fiction. It was almost Pulp Fiction. Time. Yeah. It would have been the yeah. next year, which was kind of the – anyway. Um, yeah, Reservoir Dogs was out. So it was a different animal. It was a different time in history. But it's having a resurgence this fall. Whoever – uh, you know, I really want to give a shout out to whoever was smart enough to be like, you know what? We should re-release this fall. Hocus Pocus. <laughs> like somebody in some meeting in June pitched that 
And it took some bravery to pitch that in that meeting. And it took some convincing of some other people wherever they had the rights to be like, we need to do a theatrical re-release of Hocus Pocus. And they were clearly smart to do it. And that person deserves some sort of visionary award. I think that it's a good point. Like, like we're saying, there's kind of a when others zig, you zag. That's like maybe darker and grittier is not like finally after a long time is just not the right play right now. Maybe you could get people interested in something that uh, is a little more escapist and a little more. Um, I don't want to say it has to be upbeat, but just a little different than what we're experiencing. Elements Bolt is a groundbreaking storage solution, offering up to 10 times the speed of an SSD-based system. Designed to deliver amazing performance to every department in your facility, from scanning to color grading, editing, VFX, and GFX, Elements Bolt will put an end to stuttering playback, slow copying, or proxy creation for offline editing. This flexible, high-speed storage platform can supercharge any professional post-production environment and even provides native Avid bin-locking functionality. Every Element system is jam-packed with amazing tools and features developed to help with day-to-day post-production tasks. The extremely intuitive user interface is designed with creative people in mind and can easily be used with little to no IT knowledge. Ready to boost your performance? Find out more at elements.tv bolt. So speaking of awards, M. Night Shyamalan has teamed up with the Biden-Harris campaign for the Future Filmmakers Challenge. The winning award or the three winning awards from it will be a Zoom meeting with M. Night Shyamalan to talk about art, talk about movies, uh, presumably pitch your future ideas unless they specifically forbid you to do that, which I suspect (laughs) you're probably specifically forbidden from doing that. But if they don't, we can assume everyone will. But, you know, so in order to enter, you have to do a creative and entertaining 90-second video that answers things like why and how are you voting, uh, who do you want to encourage to vote, what's your voting story, and uh, the three top winners will be on the Biden-Harris website, and you'll get to meet with M. Night Shyamalan. Um, I think this is cool. I think that UGC, user-generated content, is a complicated thing, Um, you know, because we're in this... I think for campaigns, it's fine. It's complicated when brands do it because a lot of times brands will do UGC, like, you know, Urban Outfitters famously will do UGC campaigns where it's like, you in the right to be, to have your photos of you in Urban Outfitters gear shown on our um, billboards or whatever. And it's like, well, you used to pay a photographer to take those photos. (laughs) Yeah. you know, Urban Outfitters has been good to me. My book was in Urban Outfitters in person because it had the word urban in the title. And so, they, <laughs> so like, I, I, you know, I feel warmly towards Urban Outfitters. I, I just called them out because I know that that happened to them. But a lot of stores, UGC has been complicated. For a political campaign, I'm sure they're still paying creators to make TV ads. And they're just saying they're going to put them on their website. And anything that gets more people, especially young people, because this is really targeted at younger filmmakers, thinking about the meaning of voting thinking about how to have conversations with other people about voting. I mean, I'm still shocked that I run into occasional people who are like, I'm not going to vote. I don't think anybody's going to beat the get your booty to the polls ad, which I think is the best campaign, the the best get out the vote ad of 2020 by far. But I think if people want to use that as an inspiration to do other ads about, about voting or little videos about voting, there's a lot there. Yeah, I love this. I'm a big fan of UGC. Uh, I I do agree that sometimes it can be used to manipulate uh, and and eliminate paid labor, <laughs> but typically, you know, the only the counter to that it, it it really depends on the circumstances. But there's a way that you can do it that creates community as well, um, that allows people to interact over their creation or inter interact with other filmmakers or see what people are doing that I think fosters more partnerships and more collaboration and and things like that. Um, And I do think at the end of the day, it's unlikely that UGC will ever quite match a budgeted quality production. So I think, um, but 
all that that issue aside, which I, I, I agree is thorny, voting is a good thing. Everyone should vote. Um, and doing things like this to talk about voting as a part of our identity and why we do it and why we want other people to do it is just like a win all around. And so I think it's great. I don't love M. Night, but um, I love that he's doing this. So maybe I do love him. I should say I don't <laughs> love his movies all the time, but I love that he's doing this. I think it's great. I think that yeah. they are. These are the kinds of things that use the medium, the, the potential for every single person who has a, a phone to start creating something and share it on the, immediately. It's platforms like this are great. Um, I love it. Did you guys ever uh, create like the Doritos Super Bowl ads? You know, I got hot weirdly as much as those <laughs> were intended to be um, like a bunch of friends making them. When I was a DP every year, someone would hire me to shoot one and I would get paid a full rate to go shoot one. It was the strangest thing. Yeah, but like people sure. put budgets into them and I shot more than one year of them <laughs> because it was always a bump of people who were like out there trying to, to get into the commercial game. You know what yeah. the one like that for, for me in my world was, was that I think for a while Coca-Cola did this thing and a lot of the USC community, do you recall that at all, Charles? Coca-Cola refreshing filmmakers. I have, yeah, I, can, yes. I had many friends who went through that process. Yeah. So I think I, I did a few where I worked on them. But that was a whole thing that was like a contest. And it was a little, it would have been a little bit before UGC was so prevalent because you couldn't not, you know, it, the technology wasn't as advanced, obviously. But yeah, it was like this kind of people start pouring a lot of money in because anytime there's a chance to be seen, to get your work out there, you know, people are going to go for it and it's going to create opportunity. So that's why I like it. I like those things. How about you, Oakley? Did you ever do any of those? I've done a few Doritos specs that didn't make it. Um, partly because, probably like Charles said, I thought everybody was at home making funny little silly stuff. And it turned out every year people were hiring, like, full-on casting crew to do it. But, yeah, I mean, I think I did one. They were fun, though. So, like you said, it's just an excuse to do something. Although, obviously, I wanted to win the money, and that didn't happen. But, yeah, I remember one time, like, I knew a girl who was uh, becoming a stunt uh, person. And so we we're like, let's just have her fall down the stairs. And so we did. So she fell down this huge staircase. And then, and then we had our friend, another filmmaker as an actor. It, it made absolutely no sense. <laughs> I could see why I didn't dance, but, but you yes, know, I, I, I think it's a good time to point out because your story is like, yeah, there's always going to be like a USC grad student whose parents have money and pours like a hundred K into their competition Doritos thing <laughs> and like, whatever, yeah. like, and maybe they'll win, but probably not. And I think that the moral of that story to me is that like every person you talk to, especially cinematographers, they'll always say that one of the most important things is like time behind the lens, like yeah. time shooting. And like, if there's a reason, if there's an excuse to shoot something, don't, like, you know, you don't, winning is not going to be the be all end all because 99.9% .9 of people will lose. It's lens. It's time to shoot. It's, it's a reason to go out and shoot something, meet some people, put together production of any kind. The more of those you do, the better. And I just think that's another reason why this kind of thing is great is it just gets people doing, it gives people an excuse to shoot something. Yeah, absolutely. So... We all need a good excuse to shoot something. We also need a good excuse to write something. <laughs> but we don't want to be taken advantage of when we're writing something. And we wanted to talk about a great program the WGA is launching right now, which is called No Writing Left Behind. We've got an article up on it on the website at nofilmschool.com. And to understand what No Writing Left Behind is all about, it's important to understand something called a bake-off, which is also called sweepstakes pitching. So this is when a studio has some sort of property, right? Like maybe they've optioned a toy. Maybe they have shoots and ladders, like they got the rights to make a shoots and ladders movie. And so they go out to a number of writers or writing teams and they say, come in and pitch your shoots and ladders idea. And, you know, they'll, and 20 teams will come in with like full on pitches and beat sheets and outlines and treatments all with like, here's what my idea for your shoots and ladders movie is. Now, 
pitching is part of getting a movie made. Nobody is saying pitching should be done. Pitching is part of how we do these things. But traditional pitching was much less involved. There was no expectation that, first off, there's no idea that you would, the studio would bring in anywhere near this many people, right? Um, in addition, the expectations were much lower for the extent of work that was being done on something. And, you know, all of that work you're pitching to the studio is owned by the studio. So like 20 writers could come in with their ideas on shoots and ladders. The studio could take three of the ideas they really like, combine it into something, and then hire another writer who didn't even come to the sweepstakes to do it and owe nothing to the writers. So the WGA is trying to combat this. And I really love that they're trying to combat this because this is, you know, this is a classic economic situation where the studios have all the buying power and there's abundance of product. There are many writers who would like to be writing, who would like that to be there the way they make their living. Like there's always going to be more writers than there are projects. So it's sort of a classic oversupply, lack of demand situation where the demand side is then saying, all right, well, dance, dance for us. And um, the WGA is trying to put a limit on this and they're calling it no writing left behind, which I like, which is we'll do pitches. We'll come in and we'll talk to you, but we're not going to leave behind any paper. We're not going to write anything down and do it as a leave behind, which is actually really a very smart. It's always hard to figure out where to draw lines on these things. I always talk about how much respect I have for resolve for lots of things. There's, you know, I have a few issues with the software, but like, I like that they figured out really smart places to make you pay for Resolve Studio, where it's like, oh, if you want to work on a team project or if you want to use noise correction, like that's what you pay for. Otherwise, it's free. I, I'm like, oh, that's a really smart line you drew there where you will get working professionals to pay for it. Everyone else will just use it. I feel like this is a really smart line the WGA is drawing where they're like, hey, we'll come in and do your pitch. Like we'll come in and talk to you about our idea. But these elaborate written leave behinds that are then allowing the studio to take the idea and repurpose it with other people that also require way more work for the writer because you're not spell checking your pitch. You're just coming in, you're pitching your idea. Maybe you're improving it as you're doing it. You might rehearse it a couple times with your friends. That's something we all do, but you're not spending, you know, the week or two. Sometimes people are spending a month on these um, sweepstakes pitches and creating these really elaborate leave behinds, but that's work you're doing that you're not getting paid for. I really like that the WGA is pushing this and I wanted to talk about it on the podcast. I also want to talk about something that I think we, if we haven't done an article on No Film School, we should. And I didn't really know about until I was digging around on another research project. But there's a great group called We Direct Music Videos, WDMV. And um, they're basically a group of music video directors who are trying to do the same thing, who recognized that, you know, there's a lot more people who want to direct music videos than there are music videos that need to get made. And it sort of reached a crazy place where like, it's not uncommon for a band or a label to get 20 treatments on a music video. But the problem with that is, you know, directors will spend a week on a music video treatment easily. So 19 of those directors wasted a week of their lives doing a treatment on a job they're not going to get. That's 19 wasted weeks of human labor that could be doing other things. Um, and it doesn't always benefit. And, you know, they make this argument in WDMV, it really ends up being yet another way in which the only people who can survive getting into this industry are people who don't need to make money at the start. Because you need to have some, you know, you can only participate in a sweepstakes pitch if you can carve out a month of your life where you make no money on the chance of making big money later. You can only get into music video directing if you can spend all of your time writing treatments and get one out of 20 at best. And that is really like, that's one of the big barriers to entry to this industry is how do we find a way to make it where even if no one, you know, even if you have rent to pay because you're a human being um, and you have to eat because you're a human being, there's a way to do it. So I, I really like We Direct Music Videos. They've sort of teamed up with sort of uh, treatment guidelines, pitching guidelines for like, how many people they feel like it's fair for uh, labels to ask for treatments from, what the expectations should be for a treatment, just to try and wrangle in that sense, um, you know, just to try and help manage a market, right? Like, you know, markets have forces and they're trying to be a force in the market and they're trying to say, hey, there's more supply than demand here. So let's try and get some boundaries around demand so that demand behaves in a way that, that supply likes, and I think that's a fair way for them to negotiate. So I thought these two were sort of related and I wanted to talk about them. Yeah, it's a great topic. Um, I'll be, uh, you know, totally honest. I 
this is the the main reason why I burned out and walked away from screenwriting. Um, I did so many of these and became so annoyed with the pattern. When you pour a lot of work into creating something, and it's always for free in these situations, and you just end up like it doesn't go anywhere. And this is the really annoying thing. And I'm not saying like, I'll use a couple examples. One example was, um, so I was repped, you know, I had an agent, I had a man, I had a main, bigger, bigger agency. um, And, you know, had some stuff that went to certain lengths, like in the, you know, down the football field. And I think that one of the things that became really frustrating was I would be sent out on open assignment pitches that were just like, hey, we have X property. I won't name which ones, but uh, big properties. And we Shoot want- some letters. Yeah, something like that. It was always something like, uh, you know, pardon me for saying this, but something dumb usually that you were like, why is that going to be a movie? But you would I would be, see a Shoots like, and Letters well, movie. I'm just saying. Sure. It was a, a board game, a toy, whatever, a toy line. Like, And because of the kind of work that me and my writing partner, my who was a director, were doing, we were always like of the cheap, no-name type of people, like on, on the top of a lot of lists of like the, well, they do stuff with miniatures and they're great with effects and they're like, you know, nerdy and, and they do tentpole is their thing and like so we would go out for these things but they would always tell us to you know bring visual stuff build some things shoot some things like demonstrate we would bring pitch <laughs> packets that were pretty elaborate wow. yeah sometimes we would have shot a sizzle or something or like we would really build it out and you would do that with this kind of like you would be buying into this lie that that was going to lead to something and never really did and also frustratingly there were a few times that later down the line, and I'm not saying that it was the exact, but I would see things that came to fruition where I was like, man, like that is so frustrating because I definitely was doing the same thing. Like I pitched that or I, and again, like, you know, you can't, it's, it's not like someone stole your idea. It's always about execution. I'm a big believer that like an idea is, is valuable, but execution is so much harder. Um, so you know, I'm not saying, but again, it was just frustrating. And another, like for me, another experience like that, that I always pinpoint is I went into one also very large production company, major name who ran it, um, and pitched something. And the executive I pitched to was like, you cannot leave your leave behind because, which was another one of these elaborate pitch packets with like all kinds of ideas and visuals. And they were like, because we have a very similar thing and it's like, we, we are not accepting that. <laughs> you cannot leave it here. And lo and behold, many years later, I saw that similar thing and I was like, oh yeah, they had like kind of this like adjacent idea and they just didn't want legal trouble, which I respect because it's nice to see somebody at least say like, okay, we don't want you to later see this coming out and be like, hey, I left that. Plus, they don't want to get sued. I, I don't really know if I'd have gone anywhere with a case there. Not that I would even have bothered because I wouldn't. But it, it's like that's why this no writing left behind, no writer left behind thing is so important because like you leave behind work you did and that's creative property. And that's something that if even if they don't take your idea and they already have a similar idea, which, by the way, is extremely possible because we're all living in the same world, being influenced by the same things. Like there's a hundred writers out there pitching the same thing and they don't realize it. Um, so long story short, I just got sick of it. I got sick of that routine. And I know the, the, this whole thing is coming from the best place and it's, and it's a great idea, but I don't believe that it will be effective in the way it needs to, because I still think there's going to be people out there who are willing to do that work and who are going to violate this and essentially be scabs. And there's going to, and whether or not studios take that and run with it is, you know, to, remains to be seen. I think every writer should follow these guidelines, but I, it, again, it was part of why I was like, I'm out. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to keep being asked to do this in a, in a industry that notoriously de- devalues writers, uh, devalues creative, I, the creative idea, because it's like, well, there's a hundred people out there who are going to give me an idea too. And they want, they're desperate to get in a room with me just to give me their ideas, you know? So, yeah, it's just, it's a 
for me, it's it was too much. Couldn't deal with it. And uh, but more power to the people who can. Um, good for you. Yeah, I had, um, you know, 15 years ago when I was first starting out, I was, uh, you know, I was working mostly as a director. And then I also had color grading as sort of a cash flow thing. And I deliberately chose a cash flow thing where I was like, oh, it's still going to leave me the flexibility to pitch on jobs while still making enough that I can like pay my bills and survive while doing that. And it worked out really well. But then when it came time to start a business, I originally started a post business. And a lot of my friends were like, yeah, but you're mostly a director. Like you work as much as a director as you do in color. Like, why are you starting a post company? Why aren't you starting a production company? And my response was, you know, I'll write 20 production, like directing treatments and I'll get one job. And honestly, 10 of those jobs, no one will get, like, no one will direct that commercial. No one will direct that feature. No one will direct that music video. It just won't happen for some reason. Like, the other unknown in all of this is all of these sweepstakes pitches for projects that no one gets, that the studio is just like, I don't like any of these ideas. Let's not do it. Um, and, you know, the beauty of Post was always, you know, I would get about a third to a half, half when we were really hot, about a third the rest of the time of the stuff we bothered to bid on, we'd get a third to a half of the work. So we weren't wasting that much time on bids that we weren't going to get. And every job we bid on, because you don't go out for bids on post until you've got something. Every job we bid on, someone got. I usually knew the people who got it, but I was like, oh, someone's getting that job. That job's actually happening. It's a real thing. I'm in real competition when I bid on it. I'm actually being considered here as opposed to, so it just made more sense when I started. Eventually, we grew into a production company um, and you know, produced a bunch of features and a short and uh, that got nominated for an Oscar and a bunch of other stuff. But like, it started in post because of the bid process. Because I was like, I don't want to start a production company with no cash flow and spend a year writing treatments for projects and none of them happen. Whereas at least with a post company, we can get going and we can get some ground under our feet and start building work. And then our first year when we were both a post house and a production company, we did like four production jobs. It would not have been enough to survive in the beginning because there just wasn't enough because so many of the things we wrote on didn't happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm... I think, you know, the more solidarity we can have of we're not going to spend that much time chasing projects that aren't real, um, the more we get to focus on real projects, which feels good. Yeah, I know. It is crazy how rampant just this whole concept is in all aspects of the film industry. And it kind of sucks. Um, you know, I mean, it's certainly that way in documentary. It's like, come back when... This idea sounds good, but come back when you've shot something. I mean, that's, you know, the whole model, <sighs> you know, and you're like, well, if I, if I already shot it, but that's, and even all the legitimate institutions, it's like, well, let us know when you've got a, at least 20 minutes edited, you know, so basically every documentary grant or funding institution will say that. And it's, you know, there's like very few organizations that understand that not everybody has the means to put a bunch of money or to take out a lot of time, not making money to do stuff like this. And yeah, and I, and it'd be it's so that's really cool that WGA is doing that and the music video uh, guys doing that too. There's I it could it, the, we should we should like definitely have a, a more solidarity like you said. And I know this expands to like commercial directors because I remember on No Film School I think last year we talked to Ryan Booth who's a commercial director and it's this it's the same thing like to direct a commercial and he's done stuff for like Nike and, and Google and, you know, three or four commercial directors will be asked to put together materials for like a month. And then, you know, one of them gets it and the other one's just spent a month, you know, with no pay, um, getting no remuneration for all their time. Um, although to be fair, if they do get it, they probably make a lot more money than any of the documentary filmmakers who are coming back with their 20 minute edit. But yeah. Why is this the model that, the film industry runs on we need to you know we need to make a fuss about this and change something right it's just like i we talk about it and i you know it it dates back to what the, in, it it's the earliest part of the business model like it's just uh it's it's writers get taken advantage of creatives get taken advantage of because there's a lot of people who want that job you know there's a yeah. lot of people willing to do it and uh it's, so we have to stop problem. being so desperate. Like if we can just stop, like put a pause on the desperation that we all feel <laughs> to be collectively like slightly less desperate. 
it'll be better. Well, for going back, I mean, reincorporating something we talked about in the same in the same thing. I think, and for our for our community and our um, for our listeners, I think you will have the power more and more because we talked about user generated content, and even though there's a double edged sword there with the um, you know people not paying for labor, your ability to make something and get it into the world without needing to cross the gatekeepers gives you a power. It gives you the power to create something they want and don't have um, and to demonstrate your value and your ability on your own, not for them, not with the ideas that they get to decide, oh, we want that, we don't want that. Um, You can just go out and do it. And again, like that was kind of, again, in my story, that was the other thing is it was like, you know what, I'm just going to make a movie myself. Like, I don't want to do more free work. Like I like, and, and I think that there's, there's, again, there's like all kinds of caveats to all of this, but the further we get towards the place where individuals can create their own content and find ways to cut through the noise on their own, the more power you're going to wield and the less you're going to rely on an industry that just wants to hear your ideas and then say, nah, thanks for the idea, but I'm going to hear 200 others and then pick one. Yeah, giving yourself the owning your own power is one solution, I think. And find it and, you know, not playing the game. Like, there are so many people who have successful careers who never did a single bake off who are just like, I'm going to write an amazing spec that's so good it gets old. I'm going to write, you know, like there are, you know, find the, find the other avenues. All right. So, up next in tech news, we're talking about pipe, which is not something we often talk about tech, although pipe is an amazing technology and we use plumber's pipe and all sorts of activities on film sets and speed rail is technically a form of pipe, but we're not talking about that kind of pipe today. We're talking about electric pipe. We're talking about the new power pipe from Blindspot, a wonderful little Scottish company run by the very handsome Billy Campbell. Um, he is in all of their videos. He's a very nice guy. I met him at NAB, super nice. Um, And he is, they make all sorts of crazy little LED lights that are very bright, hence blind spot. Um, I've reviewed a couple of them over the years. They're impressive little gadgets, but they've gone down this interesting road in the last two years where they've gotten really obsessed with power distribution on your camera, which is something that a lot of people forget about until you start getting to a more complicated camera setup. Like when you're first starting out, you don't really think about like, oh, well, how am I powering my accessories and how am I powering this? But like, you know, the big deal with a bigger cinema camera is you get all of these nice power outputs, right? You get DTAP and you get, um, you know, uh, Fisher or high rose adapters for power. You get all this better stuff. But when you're out there with a little camera, but you want to power a wireless follow focus or you want to power a wireless video setup or something, you need to figure out all these ways. Like I've been out on little shoots where it's like we have a separate battery for this and a separate battery for that. And it's very frustrating and annoying. So first off, last year they came out with a camera cage that had a battery built in, which I thought was a super cool idea because we're all out there with cages on our camera. Why not build a battery into one? But then this year they just came out with a cool thing called the power pipe. And the goal of the power pipe is to be able to power a wide variety of things from USB-C. And the reason why this is interesting is if you've ever been on set, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I've had like one thing that needs power and another thing that delivers power, but no cable that could connect the two. Because like the thing that delivers power only puts out 24 volts and the receiver is only 12 volts or whatever, or there's just not a cable that exists that connects them. But USB-C is a smart format that senses what it's connected to and outputs the right amount of power for it, which is why you can use the same charger, you know, your USB-C charger that you power your MacBook Pro with, you can charge your iPhone with. The charger is smart enough to turn down the power and not send as much to your iPhone as it sends to your MacBook Pro. And um, so this technology is built into the power pipe because it's USB-C. So in there, there's a little system that identifies what you're plugging into. And on one side, it's USB-C. And on the other side, it is like a variety of different connectors, a barrel connector. There's an 8.4 volt model, a 12 volt model. There's one that'll uh, power your Blackmagic pocket cinema camera, which is an, which uses a two pin Limo connector. Um, and the reason why this is so interesting is because USB-C batteries are getting so cheap. I mean, I've got two. I've got one from Hyperjuice and one from Jackery, and I use them all the time for like, you know, we need a lighting gag on set. I need that lamp lit and I need a character to carry it. I'll throw a USB-C thing on it or the Jackery one has an Edison plug on it. Um, but they'll also charge my laptop. They charge all sorts of things like USB-C batteries are just really common and affordable now. Um, 
But what's great about this, and you know, in their little launch video, they were like, "We have an entire setup, including our video switcher powered off a USB-C battery, USB-C battery, and our cameras powered off a battery, and you know, so they can go wherever you want, and you can use individual battery power to power all sorts of stuff." So it's cables, which isn't that interesting, but cables are kind of interesting. Cables are kind of fascinating. And I, I like that a company that is better known for lights, and I think they're still making lights and still making, you know, uh, a mark on lights. We're like, wait a minute, guys, what if we had a whole bunch of power adapters that actually did the random jobs we want to do all powered with USB-C? And I thought that that was a really nice thing, and I wanted to talk about it in tech news. So that is the power pipe. It is out now from blind spot cool all right that is the no film school podcast for the week of october 8th uh as always you can check me out at charleshane.com you can look at all my articles at nofilmschool.com i am available on the instagram and the twitters at charleshane and my web series which i'm soon to stop plugging but not yet you can watch it at saltypirate.tv and I'm Oakley Anderson Moore. You can read all of my articles on No Film School. I'm on Instagram at Oakley Louise. And my documentary, Brave New Wild, is currently playing across the country on public television. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Please follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Like, rate, subscribe, and comment on this podcast. And make sure to let us know what you think. Uh, send us questions at ask at nofilmschool.com or editor at nofilmschool.com. We really do love hearing from all of you. Uh, check out all these stories and more at nofilmschool.com. We are updating constantly. We will have some big camera reviews coming soon from our very own Charles Hain, who you just heard on this podcast, and I can't wait. Plus, we have uh, you know a lot of other cool stuff coming your way. Uh, and definitely check out the other interviews on this podcast. We have tons. Uh, one that'll be coming out that's out this week featuring Don Porter, who made a movie called The Way I See It, which is a documentary about a White House photographer who has had unprecedented access to multiple presidents. And his insights right now are are fascinating <laughs> you like you'll have to see this thing and uh the way things are going right now it just feels like the timing is crazy so check it out all right thanks so much 